Hello and welcome to the Science and or Fiction Podcast. I am Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. This is episode 12, uh, recorded in mid-October 2017. It is indeed. And uh, we apologize for our loyal listeners that uh, we're a few days late with the podcast. I uh, uh, was uh, stricken with an ailment uh, that required me to take a little bit of time off from doing this sort of thing. So uh, I'm fine now. It's all good. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Boring conversation anyway. All right. Um, so let's start uh, Let's start off things with a little bit of follow-up from previous weeks. Right. Uh, so I found this article in ours, and uh, it's a little bit of a bummer, actually. So we had talked about Tabby's Star. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, man, it was a couple of months ago, probably. And we had decided that it probably wasn't Aliens, um, the right. star that's like kind of randomly dimming every once in a while. Mm-hmm. And, there was, uh, some, there was ta- some talk that it might be a Dyson sphere or something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe Scotty's stuck there still. Entirely um, possible. But uh, it turns out that some astronomers um, published a thing in the Astrophysical Journal saying that based on the, um, let's see, what was it? The, the dimming effect was less pronounced in infrared than mm. in the UV, and what that probably means it's, is that it's not some big alien megastructure as we sort of suspected before. Right. So it's still technically possible that it's aliens, right? I mean, we can't totally rule out aliens. Well, I mean, if the aliens are a swarm of very tiny particles that look exactly like gas and dust flying around the star, then yes, it could be aliens, but... You kind of got Occam's razor this thing. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, well, that's kind of a shame. I, I was kind of hoping that we would find out that it's aliens, but I also realized that that's extremely, extremely unlikely. Um, that having been said, though, it, it still seems like something that we haven't seen a lot of in other places. I mean, that was kind of one of the things that was interesting about this was this phenomenon was so unique in mm-hmm. like our astrophysical uh, knowledge. So is there any reason they've figured out why maybe we haven't seen something like this before? I'm not sure. This might just be kind of a, a perfect storm of, uh, you know, maybe a failed planet um, that hasn't quite spread all the way around the star. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of the, the the dust cloud around the star is still a little bit clumpy. Ah, yeah. Well, you know, you got to break up those those dust clouds a little bit, otherwise they will get clumpy, and nobody wants a clumpy <laughs> dust cloud. No, clumpy dust cloud. I mean, you know, you don't want to overmix, though, because then right. your batter is just right. terrible. Yeah, yeah, and that's no good. You get really, it, it's kind of, it's, the dough is tough. Anyway, are we still talking about astrophysics? I'm, uh, I'm, we're we're somewhere around that we, realm. We trailed off a little bit. <laughs> um, okay, so Tabby Star, probably not Aliens. Probably we already kind of figured it probably wasn't aliens, but now we're a little bit more sure that it's probably not aliens. Uh, is there anything else we have in follow up? Yeah. So uh, last week we, or last you know, last episode we had teased that the Nobel prizes were coming out soon, and they did on time. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the science ones, I'm actually pretty excited about. Right. Uh, you did a really fantastic rundown of this on the site on scienceandorfiction.com. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of your rundown? Sure. Um, so this year for the, um, physiology or medicine, uh, prod or, um, prize, 
it went into circadian rhythms. So mm -hmm. the the kind of the natural day night cycle stuff and the yearly cycle stuff um, most animals have. And some um, some really great scientists figured out the molecular um, uh, mechanics of how that works, how the protein cycles go. Hmm. Um, pretty cool research. Yeah, that's really so, fascinating. Yeah. Um, I wish that they could figure out how to get me to wake up better in the morning, but uh, that's well, probably you know. beyond the realm of uh, science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it might very well be. Um, so then the physics prize went to the LIGO or LIGO. I'm not really sure how to pronounce that uh, detector experiment. Mm -hmm. um, they are detecting gravitational waves, which were kind of um, one of the last things that Einstein's relativity theories predicted, but that we hadn't seen yet. And it uh, turns out it totally happens. You just have to have huh. a very sensitive detector. Very cool. All right. And last but not least. Yeah. The, the chemistry prize, which of course I'm a chemist, so this is what I really care about. Um, mm -hmm. The prize went to cryoelectron microscopy, which okay. is a very cool way of taking a, uh, a bunch of proteins and freezing them on the surface of uh, you know some sort of surface, and then using an electron beam to get their three-dimensional structure, huh. which is not a trivial thing to do. Um, you have to like one of the let's see one of the three people who got it. Um, their entire contribution was just the the software algorithms for kind of deconvoluting the data you get out of it. Like hmm. they didn't actually run any experiments. They didn't build any detectors. They just wrote, wrote the software because that was a really important part. Well, my understanding, and I kind of looked into this one a little bit, um, is that the basically the smaller a thing is, uh, as you approach smaller and smaller sizes of things, so you know molecules, uh, and then atoms and subatomic particles, um, is that it is harder to get a better idea, like a better detailed analysis of something, the smaller it is because it's much smaller. And as you approach something being so small that it's constantly moving, uh, it's almost impossible to capture any kind of analysis of something because you modify it by its very nature that, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. So being able to freeze these proteins on the surface uh, of some kind of lensing thing, I think, and then use an electron beam like, an, uh, like a scanning electron microscope, I, my understanding, allows you to get a much better analysis and depth, 3D, of that protein that you're analyzing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the hard parts is that most of the time proteins are in water, and if you freeze the water so that you can you know, keep the protein still, um, the water turns out to be, you know, crystalline and mm -hmm. that will diffract electron beams. And uh, so they had to figure out how to freeze water in a way that wasn't crystalline, hmm. um, which, you know, making glassy water on a thin film like that's pretty tough. So this yeah. is totally deserving of a Nobel Prize. Absolutely. Very cool. What were some of the, since you are a chemist, what were a couple of the other contenders for the chemistry prize? Is there anything interesting that you feel might have gotten snubbed? Yeah, I mean... So I've been rooting for the lithium-ion battery to get mm -hmm. the Nobel Prize for the last couple of years, um, mostly because, unfortunately, the guy who invented, or the, the person who probably will be the winner of the lithium-ion lithium battery Nobel, um, he's like 95 now. Like, he's getting uh, yeah. kind of old, and they don't do posthumous Nobel Prizes. So right. uh, it's kind of sad to say, but... I really think they need to get that guy a Nobel Prize before he dies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, lithium batteries, lithium ion batteries have revolutionized everything electronically. I mean, like, 
it makes uh, electronic vehicles and power packs like the Tesla Powerwall and stuff like that and everything from like, you know, the batteries in your remote control and your computer and your phone, everything now almost uses lithium ion batteries. So that's one of those things that like, I think that's an invention that revolutionized the way the electronics industry and like so many other uh, commercial entities and industries work that kind of really didn't get as much recognition. It was just like, oh yeah, it's a new kind of battery. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's the reason why a cell phone doesn't, you know, weigh 16 pounds anymore. Right, right, like right. The old, the old uh, cell phones back in the late 80s and 90s, they were like, you know, you had like a car battery in a backpack. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember <laughs> my grandpa in the early 90s had a car phone and it was a phone that had, you had to connect to the battery of your car otherwise like it just it, you couldn't use it it wasn't like a cell phone i mean portable cell phones obviously existed at that point but it, it, it's really crazy this is one of those things that you kind of have to put it in perspective like my iphone and you have an iphone and a lot of people mm-hmm. have iphones and android phones and everything else they all run on lithium-ion batteries and it's really incredible that even though i complain about the fact that my battery doesn't last two days uh, and i would really much i very much like it to that I have this device in my pocket that has virtually all of the information in the world accessible to me instantaneously in most of the places in my country and everywhere in my city that I live in, as well as games and movies and television shows and music, all of which I can access, you know, for a very low cost relative to what I'm getting. And that device lasts all day showing mm-hmm. me that with a bright screen and that's what lithium ion batteries make possible and so that is a that's a huge thing that i think it just doesn't seem like we've given that the recognition we've just kind of taken it for granted yeah i'm hoping that let's see uh in about a year <laughs> we're talking about the lithium ion battery nobel um yeah. there's a couple other contenders but i think the lithium ion battery is the uh, the best one Right. I, I hope so, too. I think that's fantastic. Uh, and, and I again, the, you know, the cryo. Um, oh, gosh. Why don't you say it? So I, I don't <laughs> cryo electron microscopy, cryo electron microscopy. So I, I was just, just... going to throw in an extra word, I think. But um, no, <laughs> we just cool. call it cryo EM cryo EM. All right. Very cool. Um, again, go to the website, scienceandrofiction.com and uh, check out Lucas's rundown that goes into a little bit more detail um, about the um, 2017 Nobel Prize winners uh, in science. So very cool. Yeah. Thanks, Lucas. Yeah. So we have kind of a kind of a sobering topic to talk about today. Yeah, um, this is something that uh, nobody really enjoys talking about this, but I think that we, we talked about our need to talk about this and, and uh, the fact that, you know, anybody who has a platform, especially to talk about something that in any way affects the public affairs like science, um, should be talking about guns. And it's not easy to want to talk about guns because it's such a polarizing topic, but there is a distinctly scientific conversation that needs to be had uh, about guns in America and gun violence in America and the ease of which Americans can access weapons, which can do a tremendous amount of harm. And of course the impetus for this is the, uh, the shooting that occurred, 
outside the Mandalay Bay Hotel in Las Vegas uh, a few weeks ago. And it is the most deadly and injurious mass shooting in America in the modern age. Um, 59 people, including the perpetrator, died and 546 people were injured. And that is something that is just absurd and insane and horrifying uh, to anyone who has any empathy at all. Um, and, and it is something that is so polarizing in America because a lot of people will say, you know, we, we shouldn't be talking about guns. We should be talking, you know, we should be thinking about the families and like, you know, thoughts and prayers and stuff like that. But Lucas, you brought up something that I, I think uh, is, is really uh, true. And that yeah. is, yeah, go you ahead. Can't, uh, yeah, you can't, if, yeah, if the, the correct amount of time to wait after a gun tragedy is, you know, a couple of weeks before you can really start talking about guns again, um, if you have a gun tragedy every couple of weeks, then you're never really going to get to talk about guns. Right. And it seems like we never do. Right. And there is an issue here in that this perpetrator, Stephen Paddock, um, who we're not going to talk about at all, uh, aside from what he did. I don't think that it does us any good to lend credence to any of his motivations or him as a human being. But we need to talk about what he did, which is that he used... Um, semi-automatic weapons equipped with bump stocks um, which are perfectly legal modifications to semi-automatic long arms so rifles uh, and I guess shotguns any, any semi-automatic long arm where you have a stock um, that can has a, a spring-loaded mechanism so that the recoil action of the gun which is what typically drives some fully automatic weapons, the recoil action. But in, in the case of most of those rifles that he was using, they're actually powered by the gas being shot back from uh, the round as it's leaving uh, the chamber uh, and leaving the barrel. But in this case, these, these stocks are spring-loaded in such a way that the recoil from the gun firing causes the trigger to be reprimed and fire very quickly so it can simulate the effect of a recoil operated fully automatic weapon yeah um, and uh, as far as i know fully automatic weapons where you just pull the trigger and the gun sprays are are one of the few things that are restricted in the united states yes. as far as uh, as far as right um what you cannot buy as a civilian right they are restricted and that's good i mean they obviously should be um but the fact that he was able to buy these bump stocks and the fact that it is not outside of the uh, scope of possibility to very relatively easily modify uh, a semi-automatic weapon that is based on the mechanism of a military weapon that is fully automatic, like a Kalashnikov assault rifle or an AR-15, uh, you know, it, it's not easy, it's not hard for someone who has minimal basic machine tooling experience to build an upper receiver for a Kalashnikov that allows it to fire fully automatic. 
Yeah, those the AKs are. I mean, that's kind of what they were built for, though. They're right. You can run them over with a truck, and they'll still fire. Right. So. Right. That, that. I mean, that was the whole idea. And, and I mean, these these weapons are just built to be, you know, fixed relatively easily, so they can be modified relatively easily. And and obviously, the bump stock makes that even easier because they're just commercially available. You can go into a lot of gun stores. You can buy them online. I'm sure it's you know it's really. <sighs> worrisome to me and i think incredibly dangerous that something like that's available but the question is why do we need a weapon like that as civilians and that is an ethical question and a political question and it's just the question that i want to pose but not necessarily one that we need to answer on this podcast i just want to discuss the science of this so that we can have that out there and hopefully contribute in a positive way to the need to address these issues in political and ethical ways in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some, uh, there are a couple things that I wanted to talk about. First and foremost being uh, the Port Arthur tragedy uh, in Australia. And um, it, 20 years ago, there was a mass shooting in in Port Arthur, Tasmania, where uh, a, a, a Australian man killed, um, I think, 35 people and wounded 19. And he used two semi-automatic rifles to accomplish that. So weapons that can fire as fast as you can pull the trigger. And Australia did something that is very unfamiliar to Americans, they responded to this very quickly uh, and changed laws very rapidly to ban all rapid-fire long guns, uh, including the ones that people already owned privately, and they introduced very strict punishments for anyone caught in possession of those weapons. Now, this was a, a nationwide law. This was not a, uh, you know, a state law for Tasmania uh, or any of the other states of Australia. This was a um, nationwide law. And in doing that, they also established a program where gun owners could give up those weapons and the government bought them back uh, at market price without asking questions. And that worked. Most people sold back those weapons. And then in 2003, uh, Australia started buying back handguns as well. Uh, And since 1996, more than a million privately owned weapons have been surrendered or seized before being melted down for metal scrap. And it says overall gun ownership has declined by 75% in the country between 1988 and 2005. So gun ownership is still very much legal in Australia, but the kind of weapons that are frequently the weapons used, in fact, almost always the weapons used in mass shootings are banned. Uh, it, it is something that we haven't done in America and, and, uh, you know, there is no nationwide or never has been a nationwide gun law prohibiting, uh, all of these kinds of weapons. There was an assault weapons ban and that, um, lapsed, um, under president Bush. There are a lot of things that have been done in America, but nothing on this scale. Yeah, and one one thing, I think the obviously the political situation in Australia is different than the political sta- situation in the United States. Um, 
and so I think a lot of what is really easy to talk about when we're talking about um, you know gun ownership and gun use is the political implications and you know why and it, do we have a right to do this or do we have you know does the government have a right to take away my guns and blah 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 but I think what we're going to try to talk about here is not so much was it okay to do this or should we do this or whatever, but what are the outcomes of this right. happening? So what, what, what are the actual, what are the actual outcomes regardless of why or how, um, these, these gun, um, reductions happened, what actually happened afterwards? Right. And so in this example of Australia, they have recently compiled and finished a meta-analysis of gun violence, uh, gun suicide, basically how this law has affected their country and found that this, this law worked for them. Um, and, uh, you know, there were, th I'd say, okay. So in Australia, there were 13 fatal mass shootings in the 18 years prior to the laws uh, being rolled out, which killed 104 people. But in the 20 years since, there have been no mass shootings. Uh, and then it says, while the rate of total firearm death was already in decline before the gun control reform, since then it has dropped almost twice as fast. Gun-related suicides have followed a similar trend. Uh, and then uh, one of the Philip, or, uh, one of the researchers, Philip uh, Alpers, said that um, opponents of public health measures to reduce the availability of firearms often claim that killers just find another way. Our findings show the opposite. There is no evidence of murderers moving to other methods, and the same is true of suicide. Uh, they, let's see here, um, they've done past studies that didn't draw any uh, definite conclusions, but this latest research uh, does demonstrate that the gun laws did reduce deaths. So here are some of the key findings. Between 1979 and 1996, total firearm deaths in Australia were dropping an average of 3% each year. So like I said, this has doubled almost in the 20 years since. They've declined at a rate of 5% annually. There was an acceleration in, in the decline of both gun-related suicides and homicides following the new laws. And the research uh, researchers also looked at the rates of all causes of suicide and homicide to get a feeling for whether people were simply substituting guns for other violent methods, but that was not the case. Yeah. Um, it turns out that, you know, if you take, or if you make it really difficult to have access to a firearm, um, making it difficult for so the so-called bad guy to have access to a firearm, uh, even though the so-called good guy doesn't have a firearm either, Overall, gun violence is going to go down. Um, right. Like, I don't know. I, I feel like we have a little bit of a romantic idea that um, if there's a bad guy with, you know, committing some sort of gun violence, that a good guy might be able to stop that gun violence with more gun violence. Right. And, uh, I mean, I understand that idea. I, I just don't think that it works. I don't think right. that, uh, yeah. Obviously, this data is showing that that doesn't work. Right. Well, and there, there is um, a interesting thing about this that differentiates it from America, which is that in Australia, this is seen as a public health crisis. 
This is not seen as a political crisis, as an ethical crisis, or a crisis of crime. This is seen as an issue of public health, and it is because people are being injured and killed. And we treat other things where people are being injured and killed as public health crises, and that has worked in this country. We treated uh, automobile deaths as a public health crisis, <laughs> and that worked in this country. Less people die significantly in, in automobile accidents uh, than they did in the 70s and 80s because we introduced laws uh, that mandated the use of seatbelts and the installation even of seatbelts in cars, that they meet very rigorous standards, airbags, the design of vehicles uh, was you know changed to be safer under mandate. And I can tell you, working as a paramedic, I see car accidents every day. And I don't see people seriously injured in car accidents anymore. The only times I see people seriously injured in car accidents are when small cars get hit by big semi trucks. That's the only kind of times where that's happened. In fact, the only two car accidents in the last year and a half uh, since I've been, you know, working in Indianapolis and we'll just say in the last year and a half, the, the place that I've been. Uh, I've seen two car accidents that involve very serious injuries, and both times were very small, older cars, late 80s, early 90s cars, that were hit by very, very large trucks. One was a semi-truck, the other was a, um, a, uh, a tool company truck, you know, like, so a very large box truck. Those were the only two times where I had patients that were what we consider trauma alerts, where they had traumatic injuries requiring they be transported to a trauma center. Most other times people have pain, but no significant injury. So that's something that worked because we called it a public health crisis and not a crisis of crime or of politics. Well, and then I think there's something too where it's not like when seatbelt laws became mandated. I don't think everybody went along with it you know, without, right. without protest. Like yeah, no. I know, I think, I mean, you probably know somebody like this. I know somebody like this, uh, a member of the previous generation who, when seatbelt laws became a thing and, uh, this particular person said, well, I'm, I drive my own truck mm -hmm. and it's my truck and nobody can tell me that I have to wear my seatbelt in it. And so he just never wore his seatbelt in his truck. And then he got in an accident and smashed his head on the uh, his head on the wind, or on the uh, on the steering wheel, and um, after that started wearing a seatbelt. Funny enough, right. um, yeah. And it's just like uh, I I don't know. I feel like this is a this is a problem that obviously affected seatbelts and and car safety and obviously gun safety, and that we have. Uh, I feel like it's just kind of wired into us that it's really hard to take what is clearly, you know, non-trivial data and apply it to our lives that are mostly consisting of a, a string of anecdotes in a row where if, you know, if I've never been a victim of gun violence, um, but I like to have a gun, um, then why, why should I give up my gun? I've never been a victim of gun violence. Right. Um, and that's obviously not the reason why everybody doesn't want to give, you know, uh, relinquish their guns. But that sort of that sort of thinking is it's a very human thing. And uh, you can't you can hardly blame people for feeling that way. It's just we have to figure out a way to get to, to get around that to convince people. Right. I um, I mean, I guess, you know, full disclosure to this this issue, too. 
I am a gun owner. Um, I own several guns. I don't own any assault weapons or semi-automatic rifles or anything like that. I, I, I like to go trap shooting. I own a shotgun that I use to go trap shooting. It is not a weapon for home defense. It's a weapon for target shooting. I don't keep it loaded. I don't keep ammunition anywhere near it. Uh, so I understand the desire that someone would have to want to own a gun for sport or for hunting. Or even if you live in a place like Alaska, you need something to protect yourself from bears and moose, you know, like that's fair. And I, I, again, is this is a very contentious political and ethical issue. I am not saying that we're going to take, we need to take away everyone's guns or anything like that. I think our argument here is that we need to address this sensibly. We need to address this scientifically because this is a public health crisis. People are being injured. People are dying. Uh, in the United States, let's see here, uh, there is a prediction based on previous years that 30,000 people will be killed or kill themselves with guns in this country this year. And that is sickening to me. Uh, and I, I think that any other thing killing people like that, cars or a disease or anything, radiation, whatever, you know, uh, anything that we could quantify or qualify or study, killing people like that, we would be studying. And we have. <laughs> We've done that with cars. We've done that with car seats, too, which has significantly reduced uh, pediatric mortality in car accidents. Uh, that's another thing, you know, that, that some people had to be dragged kicking and screaming into that, but it has saved people's lives and ultimately does not encroach on anyone's freedom in any way that is restricting or unconstitutional. We said, you know, if you're going to drive a car, wear your seatbelt. If you're going to uh, have your kid in the car, they need to be in the appropriate car seat or carrier. And... People still own cars. People still drive cars. People still take their children in cars. People still enjoy it. And I think if we had a scientific public health discussion and proposals and past laws for common sense prevention of gun violence as a public health emergency that it is, people would probably still own guns. People still own guns in Australia. But there have been no mass shootings in Australia since 1996. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. <laughs> right. Like zero. Zero is the correct number of mass shootings that a modern industrialized country should have in right. a year. Right. That is, that is absolutely true. And, and that is um, Mike Jones from Macquarie University in Sydney, who is one of the researchers in this study. Um, that was what he said. One, uh, the two... There are, to me, there are two key findings from the study. He said one is that in the 20 years after the passage of gun control laws, there has not been a mass shooting in Australia, despite an average uh, uh, of two every three years for some time before that. So before 1996, before the Port Arthur shooting. The other is that the acceleration of the decline in gun-related deaths means lives saved. Those are people who are alive now that might have died at the hands of gun violence. They might have been shot in a mass shooting. They might have committed suicide with a gun, and they're alive now. That is hard to argue with. 
Yeah, there is um there was another study in um let's see uh is it proceedings of the National Academy of Science? Um just that just came out um that was talking about waiting periods before right. um buying a handgun. So this this has nothing to do with taking away people's guns. It's just instituting a waiting period or um background checks on um before you're able to go out and purchase a gun. The idea there being that if on a particular day you say, I really need a gun right now, and you go to the gun store, you can buy a gun and then go do that thing you wanted to do with the gun. Mm -hmm. Usually that's not a great thing. Um, and if you have a waiting period, it lets people cool off a little bit. And when they do, uh, you know, when they pass the waiting period and they're able to buy the gun, usually whatever heat of the moment they're in is, is over or at least decreased and, you know, potentially a tragedy doesn't happen. And this study found that, um, let's see here, over a 45-year period um, that they studied these kind of um, waiting periods um, is that these waiting periods uh, decreased gun homicides by about 17%, which 17% is not 100%, obviously. It'd be nice if it was 100%. But just instituting a waiting period, not taking away a gun, not removing even removing access to particular classes of guns like these you know semi-automatic rifles um that just making people wait to buy a gun decreased homicides and right. decreased suicides and somehow we there there are still people who think that this is something that's terrible and we should never ever have waiting periods on guns right. because you can't you can't take away somebody's right to cause harm to themselves or others, I guess. Um, and the, this is the kind of thing that, that really gets me where this is something that's very sensible, very reasonable. It's not actually taking away anybody's right to own a gun. It's just making their, uh, you know, creating a delay in owning a gun. And yet there's still so much resistance to this. Like there's very clearly, uh, I don't know, don't want to get too much into the politics of it, but uh, the fact that there's resistance to this sort of thing really, really bugs me. Well, and it, it's, it, I mean, again, we don't want to get too into the politics, but nobody who can take an objective look at this crisis in America, like an outside perspective from outside of our country, could say that there is not a, a serious issue of uh, firearms industry lobbying that I mean, it, it does not benefit the firearms industry for there to be waiting periods because that's longer than it takes for people to be able to pay money to buy their guns. So the manufacturers of guns, the owners of gun stores, this is something that to them, from a very cold, hard economic standpoint, is bad because they don't. It doesn't deter them, or it doesn't keep money out of their pocket for people to use guns to do bad things, it keeps money out of their pocket for people to not be able to get guns. Uh, and that's a very serious issue, but if you look at the other public health crises where we had industry lobbying against common sense public health initiatives, the automobile industry was not hip on the idea of cars requiring airbags and being manufactured to safety standards uh, and having uh, seatbelts with, you know, shoulder straps, uh, they, they weren't hip to this idea, but they, 
assented because people spoke up enough and said, no, this is what we as a country want. We want to be safe. We want to know that when we're driving to work, if we get in a minor accident, we're not going to have major injuries. We want to know that when we're driving with our kid in our car and we get into an accident, our kid is going to be safe. Mm-hmm. And if enough people in this country speak up and say, we have a public health crisis, we need to address it. Again, we're not going to get into the, the politics of that, but I think that it's pretty much common sense to say that if enough people do that in a democracy, uh, that's how it should work. I'm going to steal an idea here from um, one of my favorite podcasts I listen to. Um, it's actually a history podcast, so you'll have to give me a second to get around to it. Um, so Dan Carlin does this hardcore history podcast, and um, on a, the most recent episode, they were talking about, um, among other things, um, that the idea is that a, a true tragedy is when you are forced to choose between two different things that you would die for. So on the list of things that you would die for, you would die for your freedom, you would die for your family, you would die you know, for your children. But it's truly a tragedy when you have to choose between those two things. You have to choose one or the other. Mm. And I feel like where we are right now with guns in the United States is that many people are being forced to choose between their freedom to own a gun and the health and safety of their communities. And I think that's, in the end, why this is tragic and why this is such a hard thing for us to get our brains around. Because there's no easy answers. Um, Even if the data shows that there is a clear, reasonable answer, that doesn't take away the fact that people really value their personal freedoms and their, 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 you know, at least their perceived ability to protect themselves. Um, And so this is not going to be an easy thing to fix in the U.S., at least. Right. It is not, but I think that we can. uh, You know, I mean, it's... We've had public health crises in this country. We went through an industrial revolution where children were getting ground up in the meat grinders and through the advocacy of workers' rights groups and common people, laws changed, and we have safe working conditions laws now. And uh, the same with automobiles, which we've talked about a lot, and I don't want to beat a dead horse on that. I think it's a good analog, though. Uh, We have laws about that, and we have laws that protect people from each other when they use things uh, like automobiles maliciously or um, irresponsibly. You know, you have a requirement in this country to have uh, coverage of automobile insurance that can uh, provide compensation to someone if you injure them or you damage their property. Um, so these things are possible, not without significant effort and not Unfortunately, without tragedy to spur them on, but hopefully we will get to the point where we will stop seeing tragedy like this. Um, yeah. That's, that's, that's what I hope for. So I think uh, just given the heaviness of this topic, um, you know, there's, we were going to talk about some other things, and we'll save those maybe for another episode. But uh, there are just a couple of other things that I want to bring up. Um, if you are uh, someone who... 
um, is concerned about gun violence in this country uh, and you would like to do something uh, about it or do research into it, uh, take action, there is uh, an organization called Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, and it is a, a community-based movement of people. Um, it says, you know, more than three million mayors, moms, cops, teachers, survivors, gun owners, and everyday Americans have come together to make their own community safer. Uh, and I think that that is where we will see changes when we have communities coming together to demand that. So uh, if you're someone who is interested in and um, would like to uh, get involved in advocacy against this tragic continual occurrence in our country, um, everytown.org is something you can check out. And then they are partnered with other organizations, Moms, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense uh, and Mayors Against Illegal Guns, uh, both of which are great organizations that are working at the forefront to pass common sense laws, to advocate this as a public health crisis that demands our research and our action. Um, they have a very interesting timeline of what they've done and how uh, common sense gun laws have been uh, received in our country. So check that out, uh, everytown.org. Um, and then also... Uh, the tragedy, you know, that another heartbreaking thing <laughs> about this country is that for a lot of people uh, who are involved in this, the 550 almost people who were injured and the 59 people uh, who are the 58 people, victims who were killed, um, you know, there are a lot of expenses uh, to being involved in a tragedy like this, medical expenses for the survivors, the victims, um, horrible things to have to think about, like funeral expenses and and things along those lines. So Steve Sisolak, uh, the Clark County Commissioner, uh, the chairman of the Clark County Commission from Las Vegas set up, uh, and this has been vetted several times through different news organizations, a GoFundMe page uh, run by the Clark County Commission um, to raise financial support for the victims uh, and their families in Las Vegas. Hopefully someday we won't have to do things like this, uh, but if you would like to contribute to help those who are dealing with the financial aspects, because that's just not something they should have to think about in a situation like this. So uh, that is um, at gofundme.com and just search for the Las Vegas Victims Fund. I will also post that on our social media and on the show notes for this episode so that we can uh, hopefully help some people out. But uh, it's a heavy topic. We want to hear what you have to say. Um, I think this is something that demands discussion as much as it demands action. So we would love to hear what people have to say. Yeah. Whew. Um, so do we have do we have time for any uh, any more topics? Yeah, I think we're we're well, we could probably save that for the next episode. But okay, uh, sure. If uh, if anyone has anything that they like, I said like to comment uh, or just hit us up. Uh, you can send us an email, scienceandorfiction at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, facebook.com forward slash cyanorfi, and we are at cyanorfi on Twitter. Um, the only other thing I guess we could talk about, uh, our Patreon page, 
uh, I, I, uh, we were kind of talking about this. I think we're probably going to go ahead and, and stop running our Patreon campaign because we only have one currently Patreon subscriber and we're very thankful for him, Tony. Uh, yeah. Thanks for being Tony. A, a fan. Um, and we will make sure that you get something, some kind of swag once we get that stuff put together. But, uh, I, I, for right now, we're looking at ways where we can just reduce our costs and keep making this as a labor of love. And it's not that it like takes up so much of my time uh, to edit it or so much of our time to host it that you know we could we need some kind of reimbursement to continue doing it. It would have made it a lot easier. It would make us a lot easier for us to do new and cool things. And maybe we'll revisit it at some point. But uh, for now, uh, we're uh, we're probably going to be shutting that down pretty soon. So. Um, Thank you for anyone who considered subscribing. Thank you again, Tony, for subscribing. Um, we will we'll let you know if we decide to do anything like that in the future. But for now, we'll probably just stick to making it as a labor of love. Um, do you have anything else? No, I think that's it. I just uh, I want to thank people for listening. <laughs> if yeah, anything, just uh, right, absolutely. It's nice to know that we have uh, a couple people out there who yeah. think that we what we say is cool. Yeah, absolutely. We enjoy making it. We'll keep making it for the foreseeable future. We have no plans to stop. So um, hit us up, subscribe, like us on all of our social media pages, follow us, leave us a comment, leave us a rating in iTunes. Um, and uh, we'll be back with you uh, in a couple of weeks, hopefully on our normal scheduled Monday. <laughs> but uh, for this episode of the Science and or Fiction Podcast, I'm Taylor Sloan. And I'm Lucas Moore. We'll talk to you next time.